And if you have a Bible, you can turn in Genesis to chapter 24. Our Old Testament reading will be from Genesis chapter 24. We'll read verses 1 through 28. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, a son of Milcah, the wife of Dehor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden in whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all of his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, 
The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. We come now to verses 12 through 17. The Lord was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit and was there accosted by the enemy, uh, the tempter, the accuser. Um, And after this ordeal in which the Lord Jesus Christ showed his righteousness, uh, we now come to the beginning of his public ministry and how it developed. Lend your attention, this is the word of God. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing on it. Almighty Father, you who sent forth the beloved Son in the fullness of time, you who before all worlds planned and purposed to create and to redeem and to magnify yourself and the salvation which the Lord Jesus Christ brought. We pray now that as this word is read and as this word is preached, that you would be pleased to attend it with your spirit, that our hearts would be made like good soil, receiving of the seed and by the spirit yielding a crop. We pray, Father, that you would do these things, for you alone can do these things, and we delight that you do do these things. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Children, how many of you have a nightlight? Do you have a nightlight that you turn on when you go to bed? My children have a nightlight. We actually have several nightlights. We have a nightlight in our bathroom and in our hallway so that if anyone wakes up in the middle of the night, they'll be able to see where they're going. Have you ever tried to walk around your house in the dark? I've done this on occasion and have never emerged unscathed. (laughs) Usually you trip or you hit something or you bump into something because you can't see where you're going. And it's quite painful. If it's that hard to make your way around your house in the dark, imagine if you had to make your way in the world in the dark. Imagine trying to drive to the store or school or church in pitch darkness. Inky, black sightlessness. 
the Bible teaches us, perhaps strangely, uh, because we have the sun, that the whole world is in darkness because of sin. That apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, no one can see where they're going. That they are plunging ever further into darkness and heading straight for ruin. Rejecting God, rejecting the truth of his word, man is lost in darkest night. But children, do you remember what happens in Genesis 1? What does God say first? What's the first thing that God says in Genesis 1? The darkness is on the face of the deep, and God says, let there be light. And there is light. Light is such a good gift, isn't it? We know it's a good gift because without it, we bump into all sorts of things. We hurt ourselves and potentially others. We know it's a good gift because light is the gift that Lady Galadriel gives to Frodo (laughs) that saves him when he and Sam find themselves in utter darkness. Light is a good gift. God tells us that his word is light. And perhaps even more strikingly, God tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the very life of man. How can a person be light? We sang it in Psalm 45, didn't we? More glorious than the sun, clothed in splendor, clothed in righteousness, the light of righteousness, the beauty of his character and his person. He's light because, first of all, he's no ordinary person. We sang that too. God of God, light of light, taken from that most ancient Christian creed. He's true God and true man. God is light in whom there is no darkness at all. Jesus Christ is light for he is very God, a very God. But he's also light because he's the best of men. He's the best of kings. He is the most excellent one who has ever walked this earth, bathed in righteousness, clothed in light. But he's also light because he brings the choicest gifts. I suspect you'll get gifts this season in one form or another. But the only one who can give the gift of forgiveness, of everlasting life, of nearness to God, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is with great reason that he is set forth as the light of the world, shining upon those who sit in darkness. So this morning we consider the gift of Jesus Christ, King of Kings, and this kingdom of light that he brings, the kingdom of light he brings to those sitting in darkness. So note first, the courage of our king. 
and how lovely it is. Verse 12 and then verse 17. When Jesus heard that John was arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And from that time, he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. We see again that Jesus and John are connected. John is the forerunner and Jesus is the fulfillment. John points to Jesus and Jesus honors John. And if you want to know what's going to happen to Jesus, you can just look at what happens to John. Here, John is arrested. (laughs) And Jesus takes up the same message that John preached. It's the exact same message. And he takes it up knowing, seeing, hearing that John was just arrested for preaching this very message. We can mark the courage of our king in that. John, the king's servant, shared in this courage, but it is the king who displays the full courage because his end will be worse than John's. John came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Luke tells us at this juncture in his narrative that he was arrested for that very reason, (laughs) for preaching that very message, for calling men to turn from sin and to receive the grace of salvation that God alone brings in the form of this kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 3, 19 and 20. So with many other exhortations, John preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to all of them. He locked John in prison. John comes and he tells man his true problem. And he tells man the true solution to his problem. Repent, believe, receive the grace of God in the kingdom of God. And how does man respond? By raging against this messenger of good news. Mark how easy it is for us to despise one who would do us good in showing us our sin, in showing us our fault. Calvin points out, for scarcely one in a hundred bears reproof. And if it is at all severe, they break out into a fury. Malice here reaches a fever pitch as the sinner is enraged by the remedy and not only refuses correction, but takes vengeance upon his potential helper. Late in the journey into Mordor, Sam offers to help Frodo by carrying the ring, the most dreadful burden. It's a sincere and it's an earnest desire from faithful Sam to help his master who he sees to be in pain. But how does Frodo hear it? He hears it as a threat. The hand of Sam reached out to help is seen as a blow intended to harm And he rises up even against his faithful Sam in a moment of derangement. Mark, if we don't have that in our hearts. So when John is arrested for his ministry, we have an occasion to marvel at the excellence of our king's courage in taking up the very message that led John to his ruin. 
with full knowledge that it's going to lead to Christ's ruin of an even worse variety. For man's, John's end came in an instant. Christ's was prolonged in terror and horror. Jesus comes and he says, man's problem is still the same, sin. The solution is still the same. The grace of God extended freely unto sinners in the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom. The grace of God set forth in Jesus Christ. He takes this up knowing full well that it's the proclamation of this message that's going to lead to his own arrest and his own violent death. And yet for this very reason he came, to seek and to save the lost. It's an excellent thing to do the right thing when you know you're going to pay for it. It's a most excellent thing to yield obedience unto God in the face of certain opposition, harm, and loss. Our Lord Jesus Christ, having withstood the opposition of Satan, now prepares himself for the opposition of sinful man as he continues to walk the path of righteousness, and this in an excellent display of true courage. Tell me, sinners, how often have you shrunk back from what is good and right and true because you saw it was going to cost you something? Time, convenience, comfort, anything. You shrunk back from the right road because you saw that the right road was difficult. And it gets worse, doesn't it? For we often take the easier road because it's easier, and then we turn and try to convince ourselves that we took it because it was right. Oh, come on, you do this. <laughs> of course you do this. We all do this. Christ was the only one who didn't and doesn't do this. He's the only one who did what was right at every moment, even though it cost him everything. Our own cowardice is compounded because we deceive ourselves into thinking it was courage. <laughs> Christ's courage is exalted because he plainly did what was right, even though it cost him his life. Mark the excellence of this king. From the very first, he devotes himself to his father's will, the path of righteousness, even though he sees that it will end horribly. This is true courage. Here is true light in a world full of the darkness of cowardice. But this also means he can help us in our cowardice. When are you tempted to shrink back from the call of Christ to follow him in the path of righteousness? Where do you perceive a difficult way that you'd rather not walk down? There, seek the grace of this king of all courage. There, seek the help of the one who was always brave in all that he did. And know that he delights to help us in this weakness of ours. As Paul writes to Timothy, 
He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's true courage. And we are confident that we are participants in us as the epistle to the Hebrews assures us we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Why? Because we belong to the one who did not shrink back, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the light of our king bathed in true courage. Sinner, he's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your love. He's worthy of your trust. And he helps us in the weakness of our cowardice. But he's also bathed in the light of wisdom and purity. John's arrest is the occasion for Jesus to begin his earthly ministry, but it's also the occasion for him to withdraw to the north. The verb used here in verse 12, withdraw, in other instances often has the sense of to intentionally remove oneself from harm's way, to intentionally remove oneself from danger. Now this is a kind of subtle distinction that we're making here. I trust we can make it. As I was going through this, I found it difficult to make with the exactness that I wanted. So hang with me. Mm. He moves to the north for lots of reasons at lots of levels. He tells us plainly, partly it's to fulfill this prophecy from long ago. That's why he goes to the north. Partly it's because he knows it's not time for him to be arrested and killed. That's why he withdraws from the south. But it's also partly to demonstrate his own purity and wisdom. Later, he's going to send his disciples out as sheep among wolves. And what does he exhort them unto? Wisdom and innocence in the midst of this very confrontational atmosphere. He says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And we see here our king acting the same way. He knows when it's time to walk away. He knows when it's time to remove himself from a situation. And he knows when it's time to stand firm. He shows in this his wisdom in that he removes himself from a situation at its proper time. He shows his purity in this in that he shows he's not looking for a fight. He did not come to intentionally provoke. He's not out to stir up. Think about it. John was arrested. How many of our hearts would have been, it's go time, baby. Let's bring down the regime. Our forerunners fallen. Let's take them down. What does Jesus do? He removes himself in innocence, in wisdom. He's not looking to provoke there are a lot of people that style themselves intentionally as provocateurs in the church today. That is not the spirit of Christ. Christ does not intentionally provoke. He incidentally provokes by virtue of his goodness. By virtue of who he is as light but he doesn't do it intentionally. And in that he shows his innocence and his purity for he is the lamb of God 
bathed in purity and wisdom. Parents, have you ever had this experience? Your child runs in and says, my sibling hit me. So you go and you investigate, and it turns out they were telling a (laughs) half-truth. The sibling did hit them, but it was in response to being hit. (laughs) The first provoked the blow and then turned and told on the one who responded with a blow. (laughs) It turns out the full story is pretty important. (laughs) Our king doesn't poke. He doesn't provoke. He doesn't throw the first blow, as it were. The fact that he was perceived as provocative is not an indication of his purity, but our corruption. Darkness hates the light, not because of a fault in the light, but because we are darkness. There's a world of difference between looking for a fight and be willing to stand in integrity if the fight is thrust upon you. There's a world of difference between those two things. Mark our great need for wisdom and purity in this. Do you feel it? I felt it. Do you feel it? Let me get a Presbyterian amen with a gentle nod of your head. (laughs) It's so difficult for us to see where ground can and should be given in wisdom and innocence. It's so difficult for us to see the fundamental difference between staying quiet in cowardice and staying quiet in love. It's so difficult for us to discern when a word is called for, what that word ought to be, and what manner it ought to be delivered in. Christ was perfect in every one of those regards, and we should stand in awe of this king and feel our wrongheadedness in every one of those coordinates left to ourselves. May he humble us in the light of his true and pure wisdom and courage. But mark also how he helps us in this way. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 24 that Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that because of God, we are in Christ, participants in this power and this wisdom. And what does James say? He says, the wisdom which comes down from heaven, the wisdom which heaven delights to give is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Oh, how we need that gift. Do you feel your need for it? Do you see the one who embodies it so perfectly? The one who gives it so freely, who calls us to seek it from him? Seek from him that wisdom, that power, The wisdom to know when to stay silent and when to speak. The courage to speak when it may cost and to do so in love and Mm self-control. And you can be confident that he hears you and delights to grant these kings, these things, because he is also merciful and good, which is our next consideration. 
We see the goodness of our Lord on display in the choice gift that he brings, namely light. (laughs) We see his mercy on display in those to whom he brings light, namely those sitting in darkness. The heart of this passage is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus appears in Galilee and begins preaching repentance in the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew tells us that this appearance of Jesus and this proclamation of the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, the saving and the felicitous reign of God into which men are incorporated, that this is light shining into a world of darkness. And so we can ask, what is this darkness? What is this region and shadow of death? And to understand what that is, we look at the Isaiah passage that Matthew cites. If you don't recall, a situation in Isaiah 7 to 9 is a tragic one. Judah, the southern kingdom, is in trouble. There's political turmoil all around them. The world is changing. (laughs) There's upheaval on every side. The massive juggernaut of Assyria is on the move. And the smaller kingdoms of Syria and Israel in the north are roiling. And the kingdom of Syria and the kingdom of of, uh, Israel have joined forces to attack Judah. And this is a terrifying situation for the house of David in the kingdom of Judah. But what does Isaiah say? He says, all of the roilings, all of the upheaval, all of the violence, all of the chaos that you see all around you, don't fear. Trust in the Lord of hosts. Trust in the refuge and strength of the God who made heaven and earth. And what does King Ahaz say? No. (laughs) I trust Assyria. God tells him, you don't need to worry about Syria in the north. You don't need to worry about Israel in the north. Trust in me. Do nothing. Wait upon me. And Ahaz says, I'd rather make an allegiance with a monster. I'd rather put my trust in man, in the power of wealth, in the power of weapons, in the power of empire. I'll take my chances with them. So what does God say? He says, very well. You want the kingdom of man? The kingdom of man you shall have. And so he gives them to Assyria. And Assyria comes and destroys Galilee. Destroys Galilee, but they don't stop there. (laughs) They go on to destroy all of Israel, and then they don't stop there. And then they go on to destroy almost all of Judah, and but for a wondrous intervention from heaven, they would have destroyed Jerusalem too. This land of darkness in Galilee is the heart of man's treachery, trading God for man, and God saying, man you shall have. Galilee is the place where God gives man over to man and man creates darkness by God's word of judgment. Galilee is the place where God gives man over to man and man creates darkness by God's word of judgment. 
So what is the darkness? It's the darkness that comes from rejecting God. It's the darkness that comes from the judgment of God. It's the darkness of hopelessness and certain death. It's the darkness of being so ignorant of the true and living God that you put your hope in sinful man, a monster who cannot save, only devours. Galilee is a vivid picture of the fallen human condition, is it not? This state that's so vividly depicted in Galilee is man's fallen condition, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. Man is without hope and without God in the world. Why? Because he's turned his back on God and God's given him over to the base desires of his heart. You can feel why God must save. (laughs) You can feel why salvation must be of mercy, must be of grace. You can see why the Son of Man had to descend to plunge himself into such a low condition to retrieve us from darkest night and to bring us to God. Because that's where we were sitting. What does it mean to sit They're sitting in darkness, sitting in the region in the shadow of death. As Matthew Henry says, where one sits, one intends to stay. And thus mercy dawned upon those who had no intention of leaving. Mark, if that isn't true for you. Mark, if he did not snatch you from your helpless estate. Mark, if he did not cause the light of salvation to dawn in a heart sitting in darkness without hope and without God in the world until the son of righteousness arose with healing in his wings and liberation in his word. In some ways, it's a more impressive act than that first word, let there be light, is it not? The creation illusion is here. There's darkness and there's water, the way of the sea. But there's also the region of the shadow of death. (laughs) This is no neutral darkness. This is a judicial darkness in which man had plunged himself into ruin and a fate worse than death. And it, it is into that condition that Christ comes. It is to those prisoned in that condition that Christ comes and says, let there be light, for he is the light of the world. And so then what is the light? It's the opposite of this darkness. It's the opposite of this death. If the darkness is ignorance and deception and sin and judgment, what is the light that Christ brings? Knowledge and truth and righteousness and life and hope, the choicest gifts. the best you can conceive of. And this brought freely by this king like no other. A king bathed in courage. A king bathed in wisdom. A king bathed in goodness. A king bathed in mercy. Heaven's king bringing heaven's kingdom to a people who were content to be ruled by a monster. 
forsaking the rule of the true and living God. But a king must also be just. No one would serve an unjust king. And so last we see the light of the justice of our king. Verse 17 closes, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus does not come to wink at sin. Jesus doesn't come to assure man that he is a victim first and foremost. Jesus doesn't come to tell man that he is sick first and foremost. This is the beginning of Christ's ministry. What does he say? He says, man's problem is that he's a sinner, first and foremost. Man's problem is that he is a rebel with reference to the kingdom of God, first and foremost. Man's need is for forgiveness. Man's need is to be reconciled to God. Man's need is to be made right with his maker. This is what Christ comes proclaiming because he's a just king and just kings act in truth and that is the truth of man's condition. Don't let anyone present you with a different Christ. Christ came calling sinners to repent. It wasn't just John, it was Christ. But he also comes forgiving that sin that he exposes by his light. How can he forgive? How can God forgive? How can Jesus forgive? Consider the suggestion that's before us in the picture of what Galilee is. Galilee, the place of judgment. Galilee, the place of forsakenness. God giving man over to man. Galilee, the place of darkness. Galilee, the place that becomes the place of light and salvation. If Galilee was the site of God giving man over to man and darkness resulting, it was only in anticipation of the greater Galilee, namely Golgotha, the cross. For what happens at Calvary is the son of man is given over into the hands of men and an impenetrable darkness covers the earth from noon until the third hour. From noon until three, Matthew 27, 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And at the peak of darkness, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, laba sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you given me over? <laughs> Left me in their hands. <laughs> but what happened at the exact same time? The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. A way was made for sinful man to enter the kingdom of heaven, to be reconciled to his maker as the one was forsaken, as the one was given over to judgment, as the one was given over to darkness on that hill, the very hill where light would dawn for men ruined and hopeless because of sin. 
This most excellent and just king can forgive sin because he bore our sins. He can pardon rebels because he took the punishment that rebels deserve upon himself so that rebels could be made into children. And now this simple and glorious message goes forth. Repent and believe the gospel. (laughs) Repent and come to this king. Repent and be made a participant of life everlasting, light everlasting, the choicest gifts in the choicest kingdom from the choicest king that imagination can conjure. This also reminds us that our true problem still hasn't changed. You, all of you, every last one of you, your basic and most fundamental problem remains and ever will remain your sin, your love affair with darkness. That you've still got that in you. (laughs) It's not your neighbor's sin. It's not your employer's sin. It's not your family's sin. Your problem's not a corrupt magistrate. Your problem's not a plunging market. Your problem's not a difficult real estate landscape. Your problem's not this or that health, social, political concern. Your chief problem is that you're still partly addicted to darkness. And the solution is that the light of the world has appeared. And he continues to remind us that he came to deal with man's chief problem. Your chief problem. My chief problem. In truth and in love. In justice and in mercy. In calling sin, sin, and then setting himself forth as the one who truly forgives sin. There is no king like him. There is no kingdom like this kingdom. This is why we do not need to downplay our cowardice, our foolishness, our cruelty. We can own it and own it fully and come to him with hearts broken and assured that he truly forgives because he's bought it at the cost of his life. This is why we can seek from him courage and wisdom and purity, for he brings the rule of heaven, the spiritual reign of the Father in the Son by the Spirit, wherein he yields freely these gifts of wisdom, courage, purity, mercy. Doubt not the king's power and pleasure in forgiving and supplying what he alone can give. So, sinner, whether this is the first or the thousandth time, mark the excellencies of this king of light, this kingdom of light. Let its loveliness shine forth juxtaposed against every other king, every other kingdom, for even the best of kings fall woefully short of this king. Even the best of the kingdoms of earth fall woefully short of this kingdom. Praise God, our hope is in this king and in this kingdom. So let it be. 
So let it always be until he comes and the glory of God fills all in all. And there's no, no, no more need for sun or moon or stars for we will behold with eyes unclouded by sin the glory of his majesty, the light of life forevermore. Join me in prayer. Sanctify us by your word, O Lord. Your word is truth, and our hearts desperately need your truth, Lord, to direct us in the way of peace as the Prince of Peace continues to beckon us home. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.